It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Student-athletes dominated the NCAA in the competition at the Supreme Court with a score of 9-0. to The decision clears the way for greater compensation for college football and basketball players and may also loosen the National Collegiate Athletic Association's grip over college sports. During oral arguments, Justices Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito questioned why the athletes weren't getting a bigger share of the billions of dollars schools collect from sports. I mean, you said earlier uh, this would allow the players to receive $6,000 a year, as if that were some exorbitant amount when the TV contracts are in the billions. Well, it just strikes me as odd that Uh, The coaches' uh, salaries have ballooned, and they're in the amateur ranks, as are the players. So the argument is they are recruited, they're used up, and then they're cast aside without even a college degree. So they say, how can this be defended in the name of amateurism? Joining me is Audrey Anderson, head of the higher education practice at Bass, Barry, and Sims. Audrey, Justice Gorsuch wrote that the NCAA sought immunity from the normal operation of the antitrust laws. Explain what he meant. Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me about this opinion is that Justice Gorsuch really upheld and relied on what the courts below had done. So he said, look, there was a really extensive trial record here. And the district court judge was really thorough and careful in the way that she approached it. And she applied the antitrust laws in just the right way. What he said was, look, the NCAA just didn't have the proof. I agree with some of their legal points here, but they lost on the proof at trial. They could not prove that their rules limiting what kind of compensation student athletes could earn really increased consumer demand for their product, which is what they had to do under the antitrust laws. So they lost on the facts, not on the law. Tell us about antitrust law as it applies here. So what the NCAA really wanted here, June, was to get some kind of deferential review under the antitrust laws for amateurism rules of the NCAA. And the court was having none of it. Gorsuch said, look, we have this rule of reason analysis, which is what we use under the antitrust laws, and that's what's appropriate for the NCAA. They also get a rule of reason analysis, and it's a very fact-intensive analysis, and it was appropriately applied here. 
During the oral arguments, several of the justices expressed concerns about blurring the distinction between amateur and professional athletics. Did you see any of that concern in the opinion? That's really interesting. Justice Gorsuch started the opinion with the really old history from the 1800s and early 1900s about how dirty with money sports was at that point in time, which really created the NCAA. But I heard the court at oral argument, June, be really concerned about what's our next case going to be? What's the next rule that they're going to try to strike down? And are courts going to be embroiled forever nitpicking the NCAA's rules? So there is no nod to that concern at all in the opinion. And in fact, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence is a bring it on, <laughs> a kind of an enthusiastic call to arms almost against any other rules of the NCAA. I find it a very unusual concurrence. You wonder, you know, what the NCAA ever did to Justice Kavanaugh. <laughs> but there's nothing in the opinion that makes you think that they had any of those concerns whatsoever. And I don't know what happened between oral argument and the opinion, except maybe that they kind of figured out that there was really no way to address that concern, that that's just a very messy aspect of our antitrust laws, that they are very fact-based, that they are based on what the market looks like at any given point in time, and that parties that are able to bring forth appropriate evidence are able to challenge those rules. And I guess to give Justice Kavanaugh a little more credit, this could also be seen as, come on, NCAA, give your rules a real look and see whether you can't be more accommodating to the interests of your labor pool. With this ruling, does this open the door to more lawsuits by student-athletes over the NCAA's rules? It does. There already is another class action lawsuit, at least one. There's probably several pending right now already. And yes, it definitely opens the door to more litigation like this, and they will all be citing Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence. So under current NCAA rules, scholarship funds to student athletes are capped at the cost of attending school, things like tuition and room and board. What can they get after this ruling? The injunction only applies to Division One football and men's and women's basketball because those were the only students in the certified class. So as to those student-athletes, schools can provide them education-related benefits that are not cash in an unlimited amount. So more books, computer equipment, musical instruments, all related to their education in an unlimited amount. As to something that is cash or cash equivalent, they can only give that in an academically related benefit in an amount of $5,900 because that's the amount right now that the NCAA says that student athletes may be eligible for for athletically related awards. Also, it includes study abroad, internships, Mm -hmm. and schools can be very inventive in shaping these education-related benefits. So, Are we talking tens of thousands of dollars or more? Some student-athletes may be able to get that amount of benefit. They could also get scholarships for graduate school. So, yes, we are. But right now, schools are putting out 
lots and lots of money for better athletic facilities, for coaching staff, for other things. They're competing on the basis of money that's going to other things that do not quite as directly benefit the student-athlete. So competing on the basis of money is nothing new. They're doing that right now. It just doesn't as directly benefit the student-athlete. More than a dozen states have already passed laws that allow college athletes to be paid for the use of their name, image, and likeness. And on July 1st, seven of those laws are going to take effect. Where does that play into all this? You have to understand that this is separate from the case that was decided. Name, image, and likeness laws are talking about what third parties, not the schools themselves, but third parties can pay to license the name, image, and likenesses of student-athletes. You know, there's a lot of different ways this could happen, but some of the easiest ones you might think of are car dealership in the college town where a student-athlete pays for the name, image, and likeness of the quarterback for the football team and uses that on their advertising. Or a student-athlete has a social media presence and somebody pays to put advertising on it. Those are both ways that a third party might pay for the name, image, and likeness of a current student-athlete. So that's what these laws are about. The only thing that stops student-athletes from doing those kind of deals right now is that the NCAA would say that they are ineligible to participate in NCAA competitions because if you get that kind of revenue right now under NCAA rules, you're ineligible. The state laws say, in our state, university... You can't have a rule that says a student athlete is ineligible to participate in athletic competitions because he or she gets money for their name, image, and likeness. So I think that most universities will abide by the state law rather than the NCAA rules. Under the Supreme Court decision, individual athletic conferences can still set limits if they choose to. So what that means is that what the rules that have been found that violate the antitrust laws are the rules that the NCAA sets. So those apply to all student-athletes. Now what the court held, the district court and the Ninth Circuit, now the Supreme Court says, look, if an individual conference, you know, if the ACC or a smaller conference said, look, in our conference, all the schools in our conference are going to agree that in our conference, students cannot get these additional academic benefits. That does not violate the antitrust laws because student-athletes would still have a choice. If I want to take advantage of the extra academic benefits, I can choose a school that's not in that conference. If I'm going to that conference, I'm making a choice. I know that I won't get those extra academic benefits. But there's something else at the school in that conference that I really want. The problem was the rules being set at the NCAA level and there's no other league you can enter that competes with the NCAA. So there's a lot left to be written to this story, June. You're pointing out all the NIL laws and what's the NCAA going to do with that. Well, there is a possibility, probably won't be one of the Power Five conferences, but some of the other conferences in Division One very well could set rules that say, the limits in our conference are different. And any individual school can do whatever it wants. Just because they are allowed to provide study abroad, all those other academic benefits doesn't mean they have to. 
they can, but they don't have to. So, so it just makes it, there's more competition based on what the student athlete is going to get rather than based on what the locker rooms look like. How would you sum up, how does this decision change student athletics at this level? I mean, does this change it very much or is it all the other things that it's going to lead to? Well, I think this decision is important because it it does say to the NCAA, um, really, no, really, the antitrust laws apply to you. You can't get a jail a get out of jail free card based on this Board of Regents case from 1984. You don't get a get out of jail free card saying that you're a joint venture and so things apply differently to you. You, like all other businesses in America, can't make agreements with your competitors that you're going to pay your labor zero dollars. So, and that's real. That that's really important, and that will end up, you know, accruing to the benefit of student athletes because now some schools will choose to provide greater, right now, academic benefits to student athletes, and some won't. And student athletes can make choices based on what they think is best for them. After the oral arguments, did the unanimity of this decision surprise you? Yeah, I was a little surprised by the unanimity. Although the court after oral argument seemed to be all kind of in the same place to me in that they were not buying the NCAA's arguments. But I also got the feeling that they were concerned about the point we've been talking about with in terms of does this open the door to unending litigation against the NCAA on the details of its rules. And I think that once the court really looked at the arguments carefully, I think they kind of said, if that's the outcome, that is just what the antitrust laws do. Thanks, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson of Bass, Barry and Sims. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. President Joe Biden ousted Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's regulator after a Supreme Court ruling opened the door and dealt a punishing blow to investors in their challenge to the government's collection of more than $100 billion in profits from the mortgage giants. In a unanimous ruling written by Justice Samuel Alito, the justices rejected the shareholders' argument that the Federal Housing Finance Agency had exceeded its authority in making the 2012 agreements that allow the federal government to collect more than $300 billion in profits from Fannie and Freddie. As Alito and Justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas remarked during closing arguments, it was a big ask by the shareholders. The way in which... The agency carries out its responsibility as conservator has a profound effect on the housing market and therefore a profound effect on ordinary people. Counsel, your remedial ask is a big one and, and uh, hard, hard for us to swallow, I know. 
But how would we um, unscramble the egg here? My guest is Jonathan Macy, a professor at Yale Law School. So what's your reaction to this decision? This is just a devastating blow to hedge funds and others who had really bet on a different outcome. And, you know, I think at this point, it's going to be very hard to show damages for the little bit of the case that's left. Shareholders can't recover most of the overpayments. And so these big companies like, you know, Fairholme and Pershing Square, who took a big gamble on the courts deciding that there was a takings of property here, really lost out. I'm a little bit surprised and disappointed by the ruling, but I can't say that it comes as a complete surprise. Why did the court find the structure of the FHFA unconstitutional? Well, there, you know, this has come up many, many times. It came up also with the um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The question is whether you can install heads of these agencies in a manner in which you can't remove them. And the justices said, we're going to just basically fix the statute and make it so you can remove the head of the agency, which cures any constitutional defect and allows the agency to continue. And so Mark Calabria, who was the FHFA director and wanted to release, you know, Fannie and Freddie from government control, he could now be fired and he was immediately fired by Biden. So what does replacing Calabria mean for Fannie and Freddie and the mortgage market? Well, it's huge for Fannie and Freddie in the mortgage market in a nutshell because it means that we're not going to privatize these agencies, which is what Trump wanted to do, and they'll remain under the auspices of the government. It will mean that the mortgage markets will be a little bit more insulated from market forces. It should mean you know, the lower interest rates will continue to the extent that it makes a practical difference. The government-controlled agency, particularly in a Biden administration, will be much more in favor of you know, loose money housing policy and keeping interest rates low. Let's talk now about the part of the opinion that dealt with the sweep that was created under the 2012 agreement. Tell us about that. Basically, the idea was that to the extent that interest rates moved, entities were now making gigantic profits, that the shareholders were not allowed to benefit from the increase in revenues because there were these sweep accounts that uh, swept all the money into the U.S. Treasury. They basically said that that was fine, that the Federal Housing Finance Agency did not exceed its authority under federal law when it implemented that sweep account. Over time, the sweep account was huge. They swept over $100 billion in profits from you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and it would have been a huge boon to shareholders if that money had to be returned. So that was really the core of the lawsuit from the standpoint of these investors and why this decision was such a crushing blow to them. The justices are sending the case back to the lower court, but on this really narrow issue, explain that for us. Basically, was there improper interference by government in the management of the business? So it means that the investors will have a chance to show that they were harmed by the fact that the agency was unconstitutional because of a lack of presidential control over FHFA directors who basically approved and implemented the policy that was at the heart of the case, which was this sweep policy. So do you think they'll be able to prove that? It seems like a tenuous connection. I think it'll be extremely, I mean, I think the premise of your question is really important, which is a lot of this will come down to the burden of proof, and it'll be very difficult, I think, to show, and I think the directors will strenuously argue that they weren't influenced at all by the lack of presidential control. I think that's a real long shot. I take it you think the justices should have come out a different way. 
you know, it's a difficult thing. It is an emotional matter, June, frankly. I was hoping that it would come out the other way. I think that what the government did was terrible, a stream, uh, you know, interjection of the government into what should be, you know, a private enterprise kind of situation and taking money for the government at the expense of the shareholders who would put their capital at risk is, you know, something you really don't want to see in a country governed by the rule of law. On the other hand, as a practical matter, you know, we're living in a time of tremendous profligate government spending and government budget deficits. And from that perspective, it's hard to fathom that the justices would make the government fork over such a huge amount of money and, you know, increasing the government budget deficit by even more. Is this another nod to the, you know, the idea of the unitary executive? Well, this is certainly... uh, uh, this is certainly a nod to the idea that uh, uh, there, there's something meaningful about the separation of powers and that there are ways in which it's appropriate to construct regulatory agencies and there are ways in which it's not. And it is a little bit of a help to the unitary executive, but but um, uh, um, but I, I don't fault it on that ground. I mean, I do think that... Um, the, you know, we have we we live in a democracy, and when administrations change, it ought to be possible to you know change the heads of these administrative agencies. I mean, do you buy the idea that um, the president having the power to to fire someone changes the way they act? Oh yeah, definitely. If people want to keep their jobs and the administration changes, then they have to change their behavior. Put it differently, Biden didn't like the way Mark Calabria was operating the agency. He's going to fire him and put in somebody who's going to operate the agency in a way he finds congenial. So it's not often a question of will the people in the jobs change their behavior. It's will the people in the jobs be the same people or will they get will they change with the administration? And we have this huge, uh, you know, philosophical or ideological change as we saw in the last election. You know, the shift from Trump to Biden. You're always going to see people like Mark Calabria falling by the wayside and installing people who are going to be more congenial to the political and economic views of the administration that won the election. So now, does this decision have any um, impact outside of the FHFA context? Not really. This is a very special kind of bureaucracy. I mean, it has the it has a, a broader you know. It, so so on the sweeps side of it, there's really not much of a presidential uh, value. Um, on the other hand, in terms of you know, it, it's a, just a uh, you know, it's a, just another case that says that you know certain administrative agency structures like uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are not going to be you know are, don't pass constitutional muster. And we've seen the same kind of arguments made up with respect to SEC administrative judges or um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The same you know issues have arisen with respect to their constitutionality of those arrangements. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, John. That's Professor Jonathan Macy of Yale Law School. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. 
Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.